Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, it was so wonderful having Andrew Wilson with us. Last night he preached the best message on numbers I've ever heard. Just a shame that it was pretty much the same message I'd prepared for this evening. <laughs> so we are going somewhere else tonight. Uh, while we're doing the thank yous, so much of all that's happened has, of course, been down to Eric. Can we say thank you to Eric? done so much of the planning, spun so many plates, made it all happen. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. Okay, the team have commissioned me this evening to speak on the subject of faith, and it's not going to be from the book of Numbers now. It's going to be from somewhere else in the Bible. Uh, but let me illustrate a couple, uh, how this might work. So a few years ago, I was with Brian Barr in Nepal visiting our churches there. We were taking a conference. At the end of the trip, we went to a beautiful place in the foothills of the Himalayas called Pokhara, which is kind of the tourist mecca of, of Nepal. And Brian was keen to go paragliding. He said, let's go paragliding. And I said, well, I wasn't that keen, but I thought, if Brian wants to go, well, I'm, we're in this together. We're partnering together. I'll, I'll go with you. And so while I was there in the hotel room on TripAdvisor looking to find the uh, the paragliding centers with the best safety ratings, <laughs> suddenly Brian jumped into the room, hey, I've booked us paragliding and it was really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> to which my response was, Brian, if we're going to go paragliding, I want the most expensive. <laughs> I want the gold-plated version. I don't want the cheap version. But anyway, the Jeep turned up the next morning to pick us up, and we got in the Jeep, and it felt okay, but we picked up more and more people, and finally there were two or three people sitting on every seat which had been designed for one person. It was feeling less and less comfortable, and we got to the office of the paragliding place and, and signed a waiver which seemed superficial at best. <laughs> and then when we came out of the office, the Jeep was missing a wheel. I said, Brian, we're going to die. We are all going to die. This is the cheapest paragliding outfit in Nepal. They can't even keep a wheel on their Jeep. We're going to die. It was a question of faith. But it was only really when we were running down the side of the mountain and as the wind was filling the kite, that leap of faith had to be taken. So nowadays, it is faith which is going to lead to the most amazing experience, or it's a leap of faith that will lead to death. And of course, it was the most amazing experience. Thank you, Brian Barr for a great experience, one of the highlights of my life. Uh, Wokingham Church, Foundation Church Wokingham, who we welcomed into, into partnership last night, they meet in a, in a climbing center. I was there a couple of months back. It's the first time I, I've preached on standing on squidgy crash mats and with climbing walls around. But uh, as part of the, one of the activities I have at the climbing center is a piece of kit called the Leap of, of Faith. And this is a, a wooden telegraph pole about 30 or 40 foot high has little wooden wedges screwed into the sides. You have to climb up this pole and then somehow leave yourself onto the little platform about 12 inches square at the top. And as you stand on the top, the whole thing is wobbling and vibrating. And there comes a moment where you have to decide to take the leap of faith, to jump off and catch the trapeze bar. Now, cold logic says there is no possible harm. There is no possible risk. The thing has been risk assessed to its absolute nth degree. You're wearing a full body harness. There's a rope and a safety rope and a backup rope. There is no possible risk of harm as you climb that pole, wobble on the top, and then finally take the leap of faith and try and catch the trapeze bar. No possible harm. But rational caution screams, don't 
do it. Are you mad? You're going to climb up that pole and jump off. Rational caution would say, don't do it. Presumption would say, let's take the ropes off and do it anyway. Now, how can we be neither hamstrung by caution nor compromised by presumption? This is really where Andrew was leading us last night, the, these different dangers, different sides of the horse. We don't want to be compromised by caution, but we neither want to be compromised by presumption. I've given, I'm channeling my inner 17th century Puritan for this talk. I've given it this title. Understanding and applying the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ground and guarantee for moving onward with faithful's humility. Is Andrew Haslam in a building. I did that just for him. <laughs> Understanding and applying the death and resurrection of Jesus is a ground and guarantee for moving on with faith-filled humility. Remember when we used to do cassette ministry? Imagine printing that on the, on the side of the cassette. Now, <laughs> I want to look at some, at some verses that were very precious to me during the past two years. Um, 2020 lockdown came in, and that first lockdown in the UK was very hard. It was that total lockdown for an extended period. And I found that very difficult. I found it very hard. I, I didn't enjoy it at all. I know some people enjoyed the kind of the, the break, but I hated it. I hated not being able to see people. I hated the lack of physical contact. I liked to shake people's hands and give people hugs. And I just hated the isolation that was imposed upon us by lockdown. I didn't enjoy it at all. Last year, 2021, things started to get easier. There were still restrictions and things being imposed at different times. But overall, the course of the year in terms of the restrictions started to get a little bit easier than 2020 had been. But in many ways, I found 2021 a much harder year than 2020. I think just the kind of accumulation of all the pressures of that season and the ongoing uncertainties about how we were to do life and ministry, and a whole number of other factors which were applying at the time. And that last year was, I think, the toughest year I've had in 25-plus years of full-time pastoral ministry. It was just a brutal year. And these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 really fortified me. Actually, I started at the beginning of our conference on Wednesday, I read from this passage, and I'm coming back to it now. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you." What the Apostle Paul is doing here is identifying and reconciling two paradoxical realities. The first reality is the Christian's status in Christ, which is a reality of light and knowledge and glory of, as he says in verse 7, all-surpassing power. Christian, that is your reality. All-surpassing power. 
And then there is the reality of what it is to be a Christian in this world, with all its difficulties and complexity. And so the first thing to see here is this dynamic of treasure and clay. Now, we undoubtedly have treasure. Ephesians 1 talks about the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parables about the treasure and the pearl of great price, that finding Christ is to find the thing that it's worth selling everything else for. To obtain this treasure, it's worth getting rid of all the rest. We've got treasure, but it is treasure in jars of clay. And the things about clay jars is that they are ubiquitous and cheap and easily damaged. And the reality of the Christian in the world is that most of the time, there's nothing much to look at in us and be impressed by. And we are subject to the buffetings of life. We are subject to the same problems and hassles of every, as everyone else is. Plus, we get some extra ones thrown in because we are Christians. And so the Christian experience is a combination of both glory and of weakness. And the Lord doesn't want us to forget who we are. Don't forget that as a Christian, you have all-surpassing power. You have been brought into the knowledge of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have all power in God, which is ours. And we're also not to forget where that power is located. That the power we have is not internal to us. It's external to us. It's from God. And the treasure that we have is not internal from us. It's given to us by Jesus Christ, who is himself the great treasure. And if we understand this, it must call us to humility. How could we think otherwise of ourselves if we understand ourselves to be earthen vessels? And this is something which the Apostle Paul seems to be very conscious of. It's something which he actually boasts in because Paul knows that it is only through weakness that glory is revealed. And so we just turn further in the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul says, my, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in how? In weakness. Therefore I will boast, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, even the calamities. I'm content with them as well, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What we see as Paul writes this letter to his friends in Corinth is that God chooses to show his power through what looks unimpressive. God doesn't choose worldly means to display his power. And I think one of the mistakes that we make again and again has perhaps been a particular characteristic of Western Christianity as we get caught up in our Western celebrity culture is that we mistake worldly signs of success for success. Whereas the scriptures tell us that God shows his glory through weakness, that we're just clay pots full of treasure. Clay pots full of treasure. And so for Paul, these contrasting realities are vivid, and there's something to be held together. This is normal Christian experience, clay pot reality and treasure reality. That we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. That we're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around the death of Jesus, and we reveal the life of Jesus. And death is at work in us, as even as life is at work in us. These two things seem paradoxical, but actually they hold together. They have to. They must do. And they're understood in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the reality is there are times when we feel pressed, afflicted on every side. Pressures come from every direction. At the beginning of this letter, Paul describes how he has been under great pressure, beyond our ability to endure, he says. And for some of us in this room, over the past couple of years, you have experienced moments like that, moments of affliction, when you felt, this is beyond my ability to endure. It's just too hard. But we're not just clay vessels. We're clay pots filled with treasure. If you want to stop an earthenware jar from getting damaged, you can either wrap it up, you can coddle it, you can wrap stuff around it to protect it, or you can fill it. You know, a glass bottle is fundamentally weak. But when it's full of liquid, it's strong. It's a content which gives strength to the vessel. And brothers and sisters, we've got treasure. Yeah, we're, we're earthen vessels. We're weak. We're brittle. We're fragile. But in Christ Jesus, we have treasure. And that means that we can experience afflictions. We can experience being hard-pressed. But we don't have to be crushed, not because of us, but because of him who is in us. We can be perplexed over the past couple of years. How often have you asked that question? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the world? Why is this happening to us? Why do things have to feel so difficult? Why is everything so much effort? Why do the thistles seem to be bigger than the fruit? Why? But Paul says we can despair but not give in. We can feel perplexed, but we don't have to give in. Sometimes life can feel persecuting. And that persecution can be both passive and, and active. Paul, Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. In 2 Corinthians 11, there's that famous paragraph where he describes his sufferings, his persecutions. And, and some of those are active persecutions. He's actively persecuted for what he is doing, for what he is preaching. Some of them are more kind of passive persecutions, just stuff happens. One of the things which always kind of amuses me almost about Paul describing his sufferings is he describes the floggings and the, and the beatings and the shipwrecks and the bandits. And he says, we were in danger from rivers. And you can almost feel Paul in his exasperation. Even the rivers are out to get me. If it wasn't enough for people stoning me and for bandits robbing me, now it's the rivers that are out to get me as well. And maybe you felt like that the last couple of years. Just everything, everyone is out to get me. Every turn. Now, one of the elder couples from Allen's Church in Southlands had their car broken into yesterday, a laptop with a PhD dissertation and passport stolen. I think I haven't spoken to them directly about that, but why? What's going on again? Parks in a Bournemouth car park. We didn't expect that to happen. Maybe you've had moments like that the last couple of years. But we're not abandoned. And so the Apostle Paul, even though he experienced persecution, carried with him the reality that God was at work. God was at work. At times we can feel struck down. Sometimes things can come which really do poleax us. But they don't have to destroy us. Sometimes things just hit us so hard, they do smack us to the ground. And those things can destroy us, but they don't have to. 
And again, we need to, to learn the thing that Alan was bringing to us so helpfully yesterday morning. We need to go to the Psalms. We need to learn to lament. It's something which we haven't been good at in our kind of church. And I think perhaps over the last couple of years, we've learned to do it better. And the Psalms are so helpful to us in learning how to lament. The difference between just the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness and the sorrowful lament of the saints of God. There is a difference. You can pour out your laments to God in a way which isn't sinful grumbling, but which is faithful trust. And when you're poleaxed, when you're struck down, lament. And we live with the reality of death and of life. We experience the reality that death is at work in us, even as life is at work in us. We would have loved to have Sheshi with us. We prayed for him. <laughs> so many of us in this room prayed for Sheshi, didn't we? And there were those moments when it felt like the treatment was working and the prayers were working and it seemed like perhaps, yes, the miracle was happening and he's getting better. And then we heard the news that he'd gone to be with the Lord. And, and in that, we experienced this Christian clay and treasure dynamic of the reality of loss and pain and sorrow at death, and joy at the hope of life and resurrection in Christ Jesus. That's our reality as followers of Jesus. We need to understand and apply the death and resurrection of Jesus, because that is the ground and guarantee for moving onward with faith-filled humility. If we're to go humbly onwards, we need confidence in the death of Christ. We need to live in the reality of his death because the ultimate example of going humbly onward is Christ Jesus going to the cross. You want an example of what it means, what it looks like? What is this humbly onward thing? Look at Jesus going to the cross. No boasting, no swagger. Complete humility but going onward, going onward. And so we have this dynamic of strength and weakness, treasure and clay. We're called to stay humble. Second thing is the spirit of faith. Next verse is in 2 Corinthians 4. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul here quotes from Psalm 116. And that is a psalm in which the writer of the psalm is seeking the Lord's help in a time of real difficulty and distress. And in times like that, Paul says, we have the same spirit of faith. And that confidence, that spirit of faith is rooted in the hope of resurrection. We know that Christ was raised from the dead. This is absolutely central to the Christian faith. This was the, the, the epicenter of the first apostolic sermon, Luke 2, um, Acts chapter 2. Uh, 
Peter gets up and preaches and says, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Right there, that first apostolic message, Peter is making an appeal for faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is that faith which defines Christianity. And so declaring Christ must always include the message of resurrection. Now, I'm speaking tonight to Christians, and most of us are leaders, but it is still worth saying, again, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Whenever we preach Christ, we must preach his resurrection from the dead. And the resurrection makes sense historically and factually. Yesterday, Christine was helping us, reminding us so, so helpfully to, to not have historical amnesia. Now, this is the most important historical fact anybody needs to know. And we can know the resurrection of Jesus as legitimately as any other historical fact. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not the same spirit of faith. And so we also know that we shall be raised from the dead. The certainty of Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of ours. And that faith is absolutely essential and essential to Christianity as well. And the the clear New Testament expectation is that this expectation of resurrection is what will frame our lives. And that begins from the moment of conversion. Tim Keller says, We figuratively die when we repent and give up control of our lives and commit ourselves unconditionally to him. But these deaths have led to resurrection, spiritual now, bodily and cosmically later. Our hope in resurrection is the thing which is to define our Christian experience. Treasures and jars of clay destined to be raised to new life in Christ because Christ has been raised. We shall be raised from the dead. And this is our motivation for mission. This is why we are going onward, as Paul says here, so that the grace, ext- so grace extends to more and more people and thanksgiving may increase. It's because of our hope in the resurrection that we share the good news of Jesus that grace increases and thanksgiving increases and there is more glory to God who has raised Christ from the dead and will raise us from the dead. Confidence is all in resurrection. That means we must go humbly onward. The spirit of faith says, believe and speak and go. And so thirdly, we're to act in faith. We don't don't want to be hamstrung by caution. Don't want to be hamstrung by prideful timidity. But instead, we want to move forward. But we don't want to move forward presumptuously. We want there to be a a humble courage in our moving forward, humbly onwards. And so Paul writes, next verse, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Life throws disheartening things at us, pressure, perplexity, 
persecution. If you've had no experience of those things over the last couple of years, I don't know where you've been. And, and the stories we know and we've shared of perplexity and pressure and at times persecution, difficulty. We, we've got the stories to tell ourselves. It's, it's why we hear the statistics we were reminded of earlier about a third of pastors wanting to give up the job. It's, it's why, as we've been praying this evening, so many of our kids have been through so much. It's why we see this chaos in our societies. We see it in the, in the population at large, the mental health crisis. We see it in our churches. We see it in our fellow leaders. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our own families. We see the difficulties that have come, perplexities and pressures, things which could crush us. You might have felt crushed. There been times, especially last year, when I felt so low. We had a team meeting our first team meeting in a couple of years, the global team were able finally to get together last November. And we talked honestly and openly about where we were. And Donnie, in his way, drew me out in terms of how, where I'd been and just happened to confess to the guys just how low I had been. Not a comfortable thing to do. But so many of you have that story to tell as well. Of just feeling utterly overwhelmed, pressured, crushed, struck down. Life has thrown some incredible curveballs at us the last couple of years. But look what Paul writes here. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Now, why not, Paul? And how not, Paul? Because I've felt close to losing heart at times. And the reality is that we have seen people who have lost heart. We know the people. We have read the stories or we actually know them personally. Those who have lost heart and they have given in, they've walked away, they've said it's all too hard. They've given up. Now, how, Paul, do we not lose heart? What is clear in this passage is that the why not and the how not of losing heart is our hope in resurrection. It is our hope in the eternal life we have in Christ Jesus. Resurrection power is already working in us, so that we are outwardly wasting away, but we are inwardly being renewed. The reality is that life does pass very fast. Life passes quickly. And we can feel the pressures of that. After a conference, you might feel it. We, we, the global team started to meet on Sunday afternoon, so we've been in this for nearly a week now. I looked in the mirror before coming out and thought, yeah, it's taken a toll. <laughs> the aging process has been accelerated even faster by this week. Life passes very fast. That's a reality. But we have this reality. Our hope of resurrection. Outwardly. We're wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed. Resurrection power, resurrection life is already at work in us. And so we need a mind shift. Brian. <laughs> need a mind shift. <laughs> so the way that Paul views the world. See how he describes things here in terms of light and momentary troubles. 
Now, you get to chapter 11 of this letter, you know the passage, and you know the, the lightest momentary troubles are not light, were not light by our standards. The, the lightest momentary troubles are floggings and stonings and shipwrecks. And, and, and it's not that those things... Paul doesn't trivialize those things. And we shouldn't trivialize the reality of our sufferings and our difficulties, the things that we have gone through the last couple of years. We shouldn't trivialize those things. We shouldn't just say, oh, it doesn't really matter, because those things do matter when you're in them. They matter. They do. But what Paul is doing here is putting things into perspective. That in comparison with the eternal promise that is ours, these troubles we experience now, are they are light and momentary compared with the weighty glory that is ours in Christ. That's the contrast. That's how we don't lose heart. And we're not naturally good at seeing the unseen and the eternal. We, we, we're good at seeing the seen and the temporary. We, 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 we obsess about the transitory things rather than the things which are going to be eternal. And what Paul says is we need to fix our eyes, look to the things which are eternal, weighty, lasting, fix our eyes on them so that with faith we see that, yes, actually life now has real purpose. Our, our lives are just a, a fraction. Even human civilization compared to the eons of geological time, is just a flicker. And you look at the world, you look at the vast scope of, it, of, this, of the universe and the, and the length of time that the world in its geology has existed, and think about our infinitesimally small lives. And the, really the only logical response is either nihilism or hedonism. It's either just abandon yourself to despair because you are here only for a fraction and then you die and go into the nothingness. Or it's hedonism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you are going to die and go into the nothingness. Those are the t only two logical approaches to the vastness of the universe and the vast expanse of time, except for the Christian hope of resurrection life in eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what makes life meaningful now, because actually somehow what we do now has eternal significance. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what makes our actions meaningful now. Pastor, when you're struggling on a Saturday night to finish your message for Sunday, the reason it is worth doing is because of the impact somehow that will carry through to eternity. When you're serving a meal to a friend, somehow there's an eternal dynamic to that. When you're honoring your marriage vows year after year after year after year. Why? Because somehow that has an eternal impact. Somehow in the resurrection it's going to count. And that means that life has purpose now. And so we also have faith that God has not given up on the world. It's easy for us to despair at the state of the world, but we have this hope that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And that isn't just, this isn't just about the victory of optimism over pessimism. Actually, it's a question of reality. What is our reality? Our reality is the hope of resurrection life in Christ Jesus. That's the greater reality. And so it's so important that we see this promise of resurrection as real, substantial, weighty. It's not just a spiritual thing. Tom Wright says this, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. 
If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ has truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. The message of resurrection isn't just a sweet little idea to warm our hearts. It is life-changing, globe-changing, universe-changing that we will in Christ inherit an eternal and weighty glory. And so finally, let's go humbly onwards. Advance. Let's Let's keep, taking, let's keep taking the leap of faith. We, we want to go humbly, not presumptuously. We're happier walking with a limp than with a swagger. But we are to go. And how are we to do that? Well, we do that by understanding and applying the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because that is the ground and guarantee for how we can move onward with faith-filled humility. Who are we? What are we? We're earthen vessels filled with treasure. And we have this spirit of faith so we can act in faith. And we can go humbly onwards. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you have spoken and ministered to us the past couple of days while we've been here. Lord, thank you that yeah, while we might feel tired in body, we're invigorated in spirit. And I pray, Lord, that spirit of faith which we have, which believes and speaks and goes, would be our reality now. That as we go back to our own context, our own churches, our own towns, our own families, maybe go back to the problems we were able to leave behind for a couple of days, we would go with a fresh confidence in you, that we would go humbly, but we would go. I pray for us as a movement, Jesus, with all that we've been through, all that we've been through just because of what's happened the last couple of years, at a global level and in our movement, all the stuff that's affected us personally. I pray for us, Lord, that you would continue to guard us and keep us. Lord, Lord we know that we, we are nothing impressive to look at. And Lord, we're so grateful to embrace that. The, the earthiness, the clayness of our reality. But Lord, we're also just so amazed that you have filled us with treasure. And we want the world to see the great treasure, the pearl of great price, you, Jesus Christ. And so would you call us in obedient faith, in humble courage, to humbly go on, proclaim you, strengthen and plant churches for the glory of God and in the hope of the life to come. Amen.